This podcast covers subject matter that may not be suitable for all audiences, especially young children. Hi, everybody. Today on Beauty Vood, we will present the story of Dwayne Morisot Beck, a Métis whose story is anything but ordinary. I'm sure you will be captured from start to end. Dwayne struggled very personally with colonial trauma. He fell to drug abuse, and through his path, he was infected by HIV. Dwayne found his way to heal through connecting with his Métis community. I met him a couple of weeks ago in Ottawa. Dwayne is definitely a luminous person. He is also the definition of resilience and shows how we can bounce back from trauma to hope. This is for all of those who may be in darker moments right now, and for those who have somebody they love struggling. I hope you feel inspired. I certainly was. So here is the interview with Dwayne in Ottawa. Hi, Dwayne. Hi. Welcome to our show. Thank you. I have to say um, that I'm really, really uh, happy to be meeting you here in person. Um, so I've been reading up on you, like I said, uh, doing my research, and I have to say I'm pretty impressed and I'm pretty proud of you. Thank you. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, but for the benefit of our listeners who may not be as familiar with you as I am. Um, um, we're hoping that you will be able to give us um, a little bit of your background. Um, we're going to be talking back and forth about some of um, the issues that a lot of Indigenous youth face uh, all across Canada. Also, um, we are going to be talking about the challenges that you have faced in your life. And I think it will be a really great opportunity for you to share with the rest of the youth how you were able to overcome these challenges and how you were able to uh, continue your life on a positive aspect. Um, also, uh, to end, um, I'm going to be asking you about your future goals because mm -hmm. I think it's always important to have um, goals in your life. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's always good to have that in your life. Just to lighten the mood, what's your favorite sexy song? Oh my God. <laughs> Let's see. My favorite sexy song. Oh my goodness. Um, Do you want to know mine? No. Yeah, sure. Okay, sure. salt and pepper. Let's talk about sex, baby. baby. Let's talk about you and I'm me. Not, I don't know if I have a sexy song. Okay. Sexy song. Well, if you want to think about it, we can put it in later. So. That's funny. That's a good. That's a good light. Uh, a light number. Usually, when you have these conversations, we have these conversations, especially when it comes to talking about who we are. Right. Um, a lot of us will tend to start to shut down. Yeah. And um, and that's something that um, has, you know, when you ask me to introduce myself and who I am and right. and all the things that you know that are going on in my life, I I tend to. Um, really want to shy away from a lot of that, you know. Um, but I am very proud of of who and where I've come from in terms of, of um, you know, the past and the experiences that have sort of guided my life in many different ways. And, um, you know, my background, um, um, I'm, um, I'm Métis, I'm Two-Spirited, Two-spirited to your, to your audience is, uh, is is a gay is gay man. Um, it's a generic, I guess, it would be a generic 
um, umbrella term that's used for Indigenous peoples. Not all Indigenous peoples will uh, identify with that, but it's a, a blanket umbrella term to be used uh, to identify gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered, um, transgender um, um, Indigenous peoples. But I come from, you know, very, um, I come from a very strong Métis community. Um, I'm from Crane River, um, which is in uh, Manitoba. Um, I was born just a couple days uh, from uh, today. I was born October the 20th and, and I was born to, um, to two Métis parents. Um, and, um, you know, um, I was... Um, I was, um, uh, I came into the world um, uh, in duress. I was actually a sick baby when I came into the world. I was a preemie. I was born uh, three months uh, earlier. Well, so I was in a, early. Yeah, I was, I was in a rush to, to get busy and do whatever work that I needed to do. But I, I, I came onto the planet uh, in a huge rush. And um, um, I was... Um, um, I was a very sick baby, and um, I um, apparently, from you know, from what my mom said, um, I was in a hurry and I was sick, and something started to really uh, happen to my my mother. So, um, what happened to me was um, I was apprehended by the Child and Family Services. Um, um, three months after I was born, um, the government of Canada uh, began its uh, process of scooping me from my family. Um, and I became a ward of the province of Manitoba uh, uh, under the Child Welfare Act um, yeah, about three months after I was born and I, I was guess, basically taken away. I guess you were almost easy picking for them, especially seeing as how you were probably hospital-ridden at that point. Yes, yes. And I, and my family um, is was a Métis family, and they lived in a very small community where there was barely any economic development. On reserve? Um, no, off reserve. Okay. Yeah, in a Métis community. Right. And um, in the... Um, there was um, the, the government apprehended me, and they they created these high expectations of my parents. My parents were not. My mom was well, 17, 18, and my dad was a little bit more older than than wow. she was. But they created some expectations um, that were um, which were very difficult to attain. They, it was set in that parameter the the expectations from the courts to meet certain uh, provisions to to enable to for them to keep me. And the process was very tainted. Um, and, uh, you know, as I go on with my story, I'll tell you a little bit more about how, um, why I feel that um, the process was tainted. But I can say from the very beginning, you know, I was very, I was sick and the government um, of that day decided to intervene and start separating and scooping me from my family. My family, uh, from what my mother has told me, um, my biological mother, um, told me that um, that the courts were putting these expectations on them. They weren't able to do that, and so finally, I became a permanent ward of the of the crown, and then I was actually put up for adoption. <clears throat> So I was adopted into a Ukrainian family uh, in the Paw, Manitoba, northern Manitoba. I, I'm a northern resident, um, so um, I grew up in 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 that in that area in a Cree Métis community, and um, 
you know, um, growing up, um, it was very, very difficult. I lived in a very isolated uh, community, um, you know, I mean, 10,000 or whatever, 10,000 people to me. You know, I'm living in an urban setting is, right. is really small, but it was small. At a very, very early age, I was told that I was adopted. And um, I was really, um, it, re- it destabilized my, my entire existence because I had, I was very young. I was in, I was six years old and I was told um, we were, my mother or my adopted parents were having another child. And they had told me that I was adopted and I was special. But what I really heard was I didn't belong and that you, that they weren't my parents. And so that really created, um, you know, a sense of uh, uh, loss and identity. So I lived in that, in that, in that shell of identity for a number of years. That's amazing that you can even identify with these feelings at such a young age. Yeah, I think um, you know when I look at, I look at sort of the the whole picture, and you know. Um, I think we're really programmed. Um, we're, we're, we hear our mother's voice, her heartbeat. Right. We um, know the smells. And when I was actually probably taken away at a very young age, um, those things were missing. Right. And, you know, when I think about it a lot, um, I do have some flashbacks, even as young as a very, very young baby like a, a baby newborn of like colors and hands coming at me and all these different things I actually have flashbacks on being inside the incubator. It's kind of weird, but these are flashbacks of trauma, of right. the separation that the hospital was doing. They were actually trying to separate me and my mom. I was sick and my mom was trying to nurse me and they kept on separating us, putting me in the back of the nursery away from all the other children. So they were doing that. I feel as though our listeners may be able to identify with you on many different levels here because we do have a very high rate at this point of teenage mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times when um, there are health issues in the North, we're also in uh, secluded areas, so we are often sent out. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, even when... Uh, children are being taken away from their parents or adoption is very much a real thing for us. And it's actually, we have a lot of traditional adoption Mm -hmm. that happens. So I can imagine that a lot of our listeners are going to be able to identify with your story on many different levels. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the disconnection from biological family, uh, being taken out of your homeland for health specific reasons and young mothers. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm. Please continue. Well, I think you know, like you're saying that I de- that it, my story identifies. I think that that's very, very true. You know, and you know, I've always thought about who, like, what that, ha- what, how that, how that affected me. But I never thought about how that affected my mom or my dad, or how that affected the entire family. And it really did, right, very negatively um, impact. Uh, my family's wellness, and this was in the sixties. This was right? in, the, in the in the you late sixties. Yeah, and they also did. They also scooped my little brother Michael too, as well. So my mom. Wow. So you know, I usually try to tell um, tell people um, that you know you know those for those that are 
you know, that when they're having their baby and you're, 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 you're going in, the mother's going in to have a baby. And then you walk out of the hospital without your child. Just really think about how devastating that really is for a young, for a mother, a young mother. Right. right? My mother was young. Yeah? And, you know, the first wrong to me is really around the idea that they did something very wrong to my mom and my dad. It really destroyed their relationship. They never were married. Uh, my mother never, ever got married because she was worried that if she changed her name that we wouldn't be able to find her. So I grew up in, I grew up knowing that I was, was different, um, that I was, I was adopted and I wasn't, I was not um, who everybody was telling me who I was. And I grew up with a very sense of disconnect. I disconnected from everything. I tried to take on other, like take on the family um, um, uh, culture because I came from Ukrainian uh, and I grew up in a Ukrainian family. And my experiences with my uh, grand- Ukrainian grandparents were amazing. They were super amazing. Great um, food, I the great food, great dance. I was very proud of who I was, but there was just a piece of me that knew that this wasn't the real, the real story. This right. wasn't who I was. In fact, even my name wasn't. It wasn't. Um, wasn't my name. So I grew up with a lot of identity issues, and I grew up in a northern community. And um, I, because I was gay, because I was very feminine looking, I was really small and petite. Um, I was bullied a lot just because I was different. I was a musician of a musician of a musical background, and um, so I, you know, my um, and, I, and I think youth can connect to this. Is my music was one of the most important avenues to to console myself to connect to to identify with i mean this was the 80s and i love michael jackson and madonna and i know that you guys may not know who she is and and all these prints and all these other amazing artists who i connected to to their music and i was also a musician so i was able to take uh, my musical gifts and use them to sort of channel a lot of my uh, sadness and anger. It was your outlet. It was my outlet. So, you know, um, music was very important. I'm really glad that I was able to have that, have that in my life. And But that only lasted for so very, very long because as I was getting older, I was starting to realize, I wasn't realizing what caused my anger. I was just becoming more angry and I began to use a lot of, um, I began uh, with cigarette smoking was the first rebel act, if I call it. Like I, I wanted to be an adult and I wanted to, you know, the idea was looking cool first and there was a rebel. I want to be rebel. I don't care because I, I, you know, I don't care what my parents say. Um, but then it was sort of like the next stage of the alcohol was, um, was, was or pardon me, cigarette smoking was alcohol. And at a very, very early age, I started to drink and experience, experience with alcohol. And that really set um, a very negative um, um, road for me without having a real understanding of why I was so angry. Um, and why was I drink? Why did I, why would I, you know, for me to deal, I was dealing with cigarettes. Cigarette smoke was a coping mechanism. Alcohol was the other coping mechanism. So I was in a lot of, like at the point where I was drinking at a very early age, I was in so much pain. It wasn't even funny. And, you know, we have these feelings of despair when we're younger. We, you know, I have these I'm not worthy. I don't have anybody. Um, I was really rebellious. I was the problem child. 
Um, I couldn't connect with people. I had a very hard time connecting with people. Um, I didn't want people touching me, loving me. Um, and, you know, there was also, you know, I mean, in the family, the unit that I was living in, there was a lot of physical violence. There is also um, some sexual, um, some sexual violence as well. And I was really carrying all the non-identity, the the violence, the bullying, the sexual abuse, and um, and the the lack of supports from anywhere. Being the only person, I was dealing with all that, and that's what sort of put me in, you know, put me in the world of drinking a lot. You were trying to mask it. Yes, I was, you know, and you know. Sometimes I don't like to say this, but sometimes I think alcohol saved my life because I probably would have, I, you know, I tried to commit suicide a few times. Um, I was admitted to a mental health institution because they thought I was going crazy. And I thought I really was, you know, drinking and driving and all the other stuff. I'm glad I didn't kill anybody or, or kill myself or whatever. But I was really harming myself at the, at the highest level. And um, it was... Um, it was really, really difficult to sort of understand why all this stuff was happening to me. And so I decided to start, I started to move around because I would, you know, I would live in one place and I would say, I'm going to try to get better and whatever. I'd quit drinking or whatever, quit smoking, whatever. But then I'd end up doing something and then I would do something stupid. Then I'd have to leave and go somewhere else. And so I started doing geographical changes and I ended up in Calgary. And um, there I thought, well, I, I, you know, I was, I was struggling. I didn't have any education. Um, I was working as a, a waiter, like barely making it. Um, I was living off of couches and so forth, and I was barely, barely making it. And um, I was really into the drinking process. I was really drinking a lot, heavily drinking. And, and uh, Christmas... Uh, 91, um, just before Christmas, I became really, really, really sick. Um, it was like influenza times a million. I had no energy. I was extremely exhausted. And um, I decided to go see the doctor and they, just, they did some tests on me. One was um, an HIV AIDS test. Within about a week or so, I, re- I received a phone call asking me to come into what I didn't know was was an AIDS service organization. And, and I walked in, you know, whatever, and they told me that I, I tested positive for HIV. You know, so I'm 20-some years old. Um, I'm a mess. Um, and here I am dealing with HIV. And that was, an, uh, you know, um, that was a traumatic situation because at that time they didn't really have a lot of uh, antiretroviral medications there was no medications that were available at that time they were they were probably testing them but they weren't really on the market so i didn't really realize what the impact of that was but i just decided that's it you know if i've got hiv i'm going to party until the cows come home like literally uh, and like i'm going to i'm going to party till i drop so what did it mean for you at 20 something years old um, my life this. is over, you know, yeah. like, um, um, that's how you perceived it. Like, yeah, I think that, you know, when I think about it and going back in time, I was on a suicide mission from the time that I knew that I was where I didn't belong right. with all the damage that the, all the stuff that happened to me from being bullied to, um, living in isolation and not knowing who I was. Uh, and it really was not knowing who I was and becoming infected with HIV. I was like, 
that's it. My 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 card is you know. That was your rock bottom. That's basically. that's that's my rock bottom. My rock bottom. Yeah, and you know, so I sort of, I sort of, I decided that it was. Um, I decided from that point that I would return back home to Manitoba, and I returned back to Manitoba, and um, I was still not working. I was unemployed. I was um, really. I went through some major depression, um, anxiety disorder. Um, some major anxiety Um, and these were all symptoms of trauma now that I do know what was going on but I was dealing with um, a multiple complex trauma issues you know from like I said living up north being bullied um, being gay trying to live in that world and thinking about that identity then the identity that I needed to figure out who I was because I wasn't Ukrainian and I wasn't you know that person and then I was dealing with alcoholism and of course, it escalated into drugs, right? So I went from cigarettes, alcohol to drugs. So everything escalated. it just escalated very, very quickly. And I ended up coming home, and I began to start thinking. You know, like I didn't realize, but I—I I mean, I really came close to death um, in in mid nineteen ninety five. Like about three years later, four years later, um, I think it was ninety five, ninety six. I came back to Manitoba, and I was lucky. I ended up going to the um, HIV AIDS clinic. Um, hospital. Actually, I was in actually going to the hospital, not to HIV clinic. Sorry, I was going to the hospital for um, um, immunodeficiency uh, um, specialists. And I met a doctor who decided and asked me if I wanted to try these antiretroviral drugs. And so I, I agreed. So just for the listeners, what are antiretroviral drugs and what do they do to your body and how does it affect your condition? Well, the antiretroviral medications are... Uh, um, they are medications to suppress the HIV/AIDS virus. Um, they um, so it slows it down. It slows it down. It doesn't cure it. Okay. It just slows down the progression or the copies of the infection. So, um, if you think about the art, like an army of like think of what about an army, um, and um, you have like ten. 100 people in your army well on the other side there's 100 but they keep adding more and more and more so the infection actually multiplies and so if you have 100 100 people uh, or 100 um, um, officers fighting a million officers the infect the antiretrovirals actually kills the 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 million and brings it down to a manageable, right. um, manageable it, to become manageable. Your and it slows down the multiplication. It's, yeah, it slows down the multiple or duplication. Duplication. There, it's really, um, it's really hard to talk because I could say CD four counts and all these different things, but right. it's really like the analogy is really about uh, like a, a war. It's what I call it, a war. Right. You know, so you have a big army, small army, and you put something. Uh, the antiretrovirals will slow slow right. down the duplication, so you're not you don't have any as many people fighting your 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 immune system or your army. Right. And the implications of those, um, there was many side effects. A lot of side effects uh, in the earlier part of the of when the medications came. There's a number of iterations, or there's a number. There's a different. There's a number of. A different classifications of medications that are now out there, but the first type was really um, I was taking about sixty-five pills a day. Wow! And now with the, the technology and the new drugs, um, I take three. 
but the side effects were really awful. You I know, can imagine. Um, yeah. 65 drugs, even just passing it through your mouth must have been yeah, I'm very pretty, difficult. It was, and uh, it wasn't fun. Um, you know, a lot of people think that taking medications for HIV and any other STI, oh, there's a, there's a cure for that. And there is no cure for many of the STIs, especially HIV. Um, you, you'll be taking medications for the rest of your life. And there are other complications that come with that, um, like depression. Um, I'm now um, diabetic type 2. And so these are, these are and, and the, my immune system is not, as, is not as responsive. So I'm open to other, other illnesses. But taking those drugs, um, I'm dependent on those. I don't have the freedom. Um, that I would have had before. I have to take them every day at um, nine o'clock in the morning. Um, and they do cause other harms to my body, my internal organs, because it's just, these are very hard medications. So, you know, I, you know, I, when I talk to youth about HIV, a lot of them, you know, will want to um, engage in, in unsafe sex, not using a condom or, and, and thinking that, you know, they're, 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 they are, um, Invincible. Invincible. And and really, it's not about being invincible. It's about being practical and smart, about protecting not only just yourself, but the person that you're going to be with until you know more information from them and you both can sort of go down that road. In hindsight, I wish I would have had that opportunity. But I was really into the alcohol and into the drugs, and I didn't make... I wasn't able to make an informed decision. I was involved in... um, um, High-risk activities, sex without condoms, um, with other 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 people, um, that ended up um, um, with me contracting the HIV. So I was really, um, I was really, really, um, um, I would say screwed. I thought for sure, like this was it. The game came over. I I started these medications, and um, and that changed my that changed uh, I was I was really dying um, I you know I'm 25 26 and you know when I was really sick at the height of my sickness um, I would go to the go to the uh, to the fridge to grab some milk drink some milk and I'd go back and sleep for 12 hours and I'd get up I'd have to go to the bathroom I'd go to the bathroom and come back and sleep for another 12 hours wow. so taking the pills after a week um, my immune system started to pick up and I got my energy back. Um, but that still didn't resolve what I was really dealing with. And um, when you are facing uh, your youth, your ability to have um, healthy sexual relationships, your ability to live your life, to do the, all the different experiences, like I... You know, I dreamt that I would travel the world and, you know, I might get married and I would have all these amazing things. And it really didn't happen because the stigma around HIV was so high that the minute I told someone I was HIV, they went flying the other way. And even if we're doing education, um, the stigma around HIV is still at a really high level. And people don't understand yeah, there is a medication to slow down the progression. Um, um, and they're making medical advances all the time. Um, there still isn't a cure. And the stigma t- that's associated with that leaves, lead, left me at a very young age very lonely. 
vulnerable. And very vulnerable, right? So I had some, you know, I had some really tough times as a youth. You know, um, I wanted to go to school and go to university. I wanted, I wanted to do so much, but I was so limited because I was so, I was not, not only was I sick physically, but emotionally and mentally, I was very, very ill. I would start something and end, I couldn't do it. Or, you know, I would just, there was so much anxiety. There was so much um, depression that I had a really hard time moving forward. And when you're, you know, you could be up north or you could be in New York. And I felt still the same way, that I was very isolated Mm -hmm. and very alone and very, very disconnected. And through some, um, through some part, not mine, um, I ended up accessing an Aboriginal HIV AIDS uh, service organization in Manitoba. It's called the Manitoba Aboriginal AIDS Task Force in Manitoba, Winnipeg. And I started to meet other um, other people with HIV, and we had this um, great opportunity. Is it still going? Oh yeah, sorry. Okay. Just so making sure here. We had this great we had this great opportunity to. Um, they offered um, frontline services, and so I started to access because I, I didn't know I was actually Aboriginal. You didn't? No, I I knew <gasps> I was. Wow. Because I even actually. You know, I was thinking about this. I thought I was Italian. Um, I thought I was Spanish. I went through a number of different identities crises. I actually identified myself in, in many different ways. I've changed my name several times. Wow. Um, just I tried to um, connect and be part of other people's families, but they weren't mine. Um, I started looking for different places to plug in to, to, to fulfill the identity crises that I was dealing with. Because it's always it's always there, and it's like yeah. it's like a hole you need to fill, and especially when you're young, and it's really hard to comprehend how you're dealing with all these different kind of situations. You don't really realize that you're not always filling the hole correctly, right. and it can cause more damage than not. Yes, and because if you don't, yeah, I totally agree with that, like one hundred percent. I think um, that's what I was trying to do. You know, alcohol was I was trying to fill that that space. Um, um, I looked at sex as trying to fill that fill that space. I was looking at um, looking at different places where I could be connected to. I would, you know, I would take on different identities. I had, you know, I was thinking about this the other day um, before we were going to have a conversation. I thought about it around how many different identities. Um, I took on, you know, uh, I changed my name. Um, I wasn't connected to anything. I was, um, you know, um, part of being disconnected from who you are and, and trying to fill those spaces is also not thinking about all the, the you know, taking, taking, making decisions that would be in the best interest of you when you don't know who you are. And so I put myself into a lot of that. And I think what happened was, um, you know, I ended up um, accessing services for HIV and, I, and it was an Aboriginal organization and they were offering a lot of um, healing programs. So I was going to sweat lodges, I was going to circles, like sharing circles, those kind of things. And I ended up um, finding myself um, becoming a volunteer and because I was getting better, and then I became a frontline worker. So that was your aha. That was that was beginning of of of. I don't know. If I would know if I could say it's an aha, but it was a beginning of the of, of the story of where 
um, where I where I am today. I think it helped me um, being sick and going through a number of things and being able to be trusted and belong to some place where I felt like I belonged. And then being able to, to, to start to help people put me in a number of arenas. So I started off as a volunteer. I became a frontline worker. And then I started becoming, I started doing more work and volunteering. And volunteering is probably the only thing that can save my, that saved my life. But um, um, I became bored. I, be, I started doing like other stuff, becoming an advisor around HIV, sitting on boards, yes. national boards, and um, really like fighting the fight. And, you know, that led me, um, um, all that experience and a lot of that work led me here to Ottawa. And um, I, um, I came to Ottawa because I was really struggling with um, a lot of things. I was still dealing with identity, even though in 1997, I actually repatriated back with my adopted family. Or pardon me, my biological family, sorry. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I was really curious as soon as you said when you didn't know yeah. that you were Metis, how did you find out? Well, well yeah, that's a good um, that's a question. Um, so in 19, uh, 1997, um, uh, I guess I could go back, 1996, um, I was at a, at a, sh- a sweat lodge and I was just, I was very angry. I, you know, I was very angry, very confused. I think a lot of our the youth can you know can you know I was I had it you know I was headed up to here I didn't know who I was I was angry depressed confused anxiety whatever and I happened to be sharing I happened to be sharing in a at a sweat lodge and um, I was just sitting inside and there was an elder sitting beside me and I was just like so angry and he said Dwayne I think it's time for you to go home and to me like home like you know home. I didn't know where home was. Like I didn't have no clue. Didn't I, have a meaning. No, I didn't have a meaning. I didn't have a concept of that because I had been on my own for so long. You know, I left uh, home when I was about 17, 18 years old. And I had already been on my own for, you know, eight or nine years. And I was really disconnected from everybody. So really home didn't mean anything. I, I Wherever I put my head uh, was my home. And I thought about that for a year and I finally decided um, because I was sick and I had already had that scare, I was thinking it was time for me to figure out what other health issues I need to learn. And I was adopted and I think that was the excuse I was using to, to, to look for my family. So I decided to put my name into a, the um, post-adoption registry. It's a registry uh, where all adopted children and families put their name in. And when you're ready to look for your, your parents at 18 years old, you put your name and they do some matching. And, and wow. lo and behold, um, about 30 days, um, they found a match. And they called me and said, we found uh, three people looking for you, three family members. Wow. Yeah, so I was and like... they were looking for you. Yeah, they were looking for me. Yeah. Wow. And um, the first, usually the first stop is they recommend to write letters. So I actually wrote letters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to write some letters. And I wrote letters to my mom, my brother, and my sister. 
And um, I received the letters back from them, and it was really great. I got to read. I asked a lot of questions. I can and, imagine. Yeah, um, it was were, pretty emotional. Yeah. Were you angry still at this point? I, I think I was just really. Come, I think I was really confused. Did, and but you came to terms basically with the fact that you were adopted by this point, or? Well, I think. Um, I don't think I came to terms because I don't know why I was adopted. Because I, was, I wasn't, there was no answer for me in terms of why I was adopted. I had an adoption paper. Right. I was told I was special and they got to choose me, but I don't know why I was adopted. So I really didn't have an understanding of what that was. And I think that was more what I was curious about, not the medical information. So uh, the letters went back and forth. And about three months later, um, we, we finally met. And um, um, it was, you know, for me, it was probably one of the most important decisions I ever made. Um, I was able to, um, um, I finally had finally met my family and they, and my identity um, was the kind of sort of the, um, was one of the most important things, like, who am I? And, you know, like, where do I come from? And my mom says, well, you're Métis and you come from here. So I lived in my territory um, as a younger, as an older, or as a young adult, but I had been living in uh, the territory that I uh, was was that I'm from, and that I was I came from a very strong Métis uh, family. And were you not far from where you grew up? To your well, I um, it's funny. Um, so I was born in Saint Rosalac. It's right beside. It's in Crane Rivers, where actually my family's from. I was born in Saint Rosalac. And my grandparents lived um, in Dauphin, which is probably maybe an hour away. So I lived up north, which is probably about five or six hours away from my grandparents, and I would be at my grandparents a lot. And so I was very close. In fact, I would say that I was probably um, running into family members that I didn't know. How ironic. Yeah. And um, so I was about 500 and some kilometers away from my own from my own community. And... God, I wish I would have known that that was um, that was where I came from, because I know that that would have probably resolved a lot of stuff. But it, it, you know, I felt like I was like a million billion miles away. I would kind of imagine what my parents were like, and I would think about while I was walking if these if that was my mom or if that was my mom. I lived in fantasy land worlds a lot. So you know, uh, going back and learning that it was Métis, that was probably the first checky checkbox thing that I needed to know. So I was like, okay, well, I thought it was Treaty Indian because I wanted free education. What a way to think there back yeah, then. Yeah, Métis have, very but you know, Métis don't have very many. Um, you know, they don't have any programs and services, and right. they still don't. Um, some they do have some, but not very much. And the other, you know, you know, the story goes is that I finally returned home and um, and I've been building a relationship with my mom and dad and my family. Um, I know my brothers and sisters now um, and um, I met my grandparents and, you know, like things have been like I've been away for a while. I just I just came back home and 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 me and my mom have been doing a lot of healing and part of the work that part of the work as a result of some of that stuff, part of the work that I decided to embark on was starting to work on the issue of 60s scoop. And the 60s scoop is a term that's that's used to describe 
a time and period in Canadian history following residential schools from the late 60s up to the early 80s, a time when Indigenous children were being removed from their communities and put into um, non-Indigenous families um, and trafficked all over the world. So I was lucky I was still in my province, but there are First Nations, Métis, Inuit children that were taken from their families, disconnected from their lands and their culture and their rights and and moved all over as far as New Zealand and into Europe. So, um, you know, part of the healing that part of the healing and part of some of the work that I have taken on um, from um, from the humble beginnings um, is is looking at sort of um, uh, the 60 scoop. But I think I should go back a little bit around a lot of the, you know, the, a lot of the work that I started to do in the HIV AIDS movement. And like I said, I talked a little bit about, um, you know, community working, doing, doing community um, volunteering, becoming a frontline worker, becoming an advocate. I decided that I was going to go work for the Métis National Council and I, and I created um, uh, resources and I continue to work in the HIV AIDS movement. I'm the, I'm the president for the Ontario Aboriginal HIV AIDS strategy. Wow. And um, so I'm using a lot of the, um, the experiences and the, um, some of the professional experiences, but my lived experiences to help me to inform and move some of the stuff forward. At, at this point, when you say where you started volunteering and started uh, branching out and you started to become a, a part of the council, is this before or after you had met your mother? This was actually, um, this was before. Right. Yeah. Right. So I did a lot of like, you know, I think, you know, the risk factors for me um, going forward and what I've learned from a lot of the stuff, the volunteering and the, and the, you know, the, the stuff that has been, that has driven me to, to, to do some of the work that I'm doing was based on the fact that um, I know from my experiences that identity uh, for Indigenous peoples has been erased and I was trying to figure out, you know, I was really angry about who I was. Um, I thought my issue was that I was, because I was HIV, that that was my main issue. I was angry because I didn't have any identity. I was angry because I was HIV, but I didn't know why I was all these things. But I identified myself as being someone that was, that had no connection to anybody identified myself as being a sick person and I had to live with you know mental health issues you know um, a few years ago about five years ago I was diagnosed with PTSD wow. yeah so post-traumatic stress disorder it's 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 based on a number of you know um, traumas you know and so part of the part of the work that I need to do was, you know, I had all these these um, challenges. challenges that I need to look at, but I didn't know why, 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 why did all this happen? Why was I taken away from my family? Why am I HIV positive? Why do I have PTSD? I didn't come into this world with any of this stuff, right? You know, so I was trying to figure it out, and. 
part of the work, like I said, I started working in uh, moving from the HIV foray and I started to take on the issue around the 60s scoop because I kind of started to, you know, the sharing of my story, me and my mom talking about the story and trying to figure out what was going on. I finally realized that I was actually part of the 60s scoop. And that was another thing that I need to figure out why. So I was like taken away HIV. Now I'm a 60 scoop child and I have a brother that's the same thing. And, and I, I wanted to know why. And so we started to do a little bit more work. And so, you know, when you peel back the onion, um, you start to realize that, um, you know, for me, it was really about um, colonialism. It was about um, the fact that um, as an Indigenous person, um, my connection is to the land and my connection is to everything that's around me. And what the government, from a colonial perspective, um, governments have wanted access to our, our natural resources so that they could, um, you know, create taxes and generate money and so forth. And, of course, corporations have come in and they've helped themselves. I mean, we can talk about the northern communities as a perfect example of, you know, fracking and all these other different corporate interests. But the idea was to remove me from my land and remove me from my community um, as a act of genocide, and attempted genocide, attempted genocide because they did not succeed. And I think you're 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 right. I took that to the UN actually this summer. Uh, but you know, when I started to think about it, I was like, what I first needed to understand was what what my history was. Right. You know, and I did that by connecting, reconnecting with my family. So I had the identity crisis, and I had to figure out who I was. Check back to your grassroots. You betcha. So I went home. So that was the first most important thing I did. And was it, was, it, was it how you imagined it would be? No, no. I had a very different understanding of what my family was going to be. And the expectation was really, really uh, very different. Wow. Um, but I'm, I'm so glad that I did. I went home. Um, it was, um, it's this, it was the, the most I usually tell people I hit a forks in my life. It was either live or die, and I chose to live because I always I was all, I continued to fight, and we and I, we still do today. Right. Um, but it was it was a life or death situation. It was either live or die. So I decided to choose to go home, and so that's where my identity came from. I learned from my mom who I was. I connected with my family. And I became, I, I knew I was Métis. Um, I come from, I come from Crane River. Um, my family is a very political family and they're healers. All my family, most of my family members are in the nursing or in the medical field. So I'm sure you were able to identify a lot of your family traits in yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, our laughing, our laugh, our, our sense of humor, our need to help people, um, our, our human rights um, are, are defenders of human rights. I'm, um, I'm, um, my spirit name is, is White Owl, and I come from the, um, from the Eagle Clan, and that's something that's very, very important for me to know. I, did, I could never announce myself um, in any circle or any ceremony, and now I can because I have those, those names, those identifications. So I know who I am. That's right? beautiful. Yes, and that's something that, that was the first thing that I needed to do. And so that took a good 10 years to, 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 to figure out 
to figure out my place in my community, my family, um, to learn about my culture, um, to to meet the people that were in my community. To you know, I, I moved to Ottawa and I started working for the Métis National Council. So I had just learned who I was in um, um, in um, '97 and in '99. I, I moved to Ottawa and I was living and working in Ottawa at the Métis National Council. Well, you want to get educated. Go right to the straight to the top. That's what I did. And uh, I started doing more work. I started to do a lot of work. Um, and I was really focused in the HIV AIDS world. That's the reason why I wanted to be there. But then I started getting into health work. And that's where um, I started to understand more around government processes and so forth. But that also led me down an understanding of starting to figure out why, like I, you know, we look at our people and we look at the state, we have high rates of infection, we have suicide, we have addictions, we have all these different things, and we're all trying to combat those all at the same time. But we don't, we haven't peeled back the onion enough um, to really figure out what the root causes of that, of these issues are. And it's our relationship with the, la- the relationship that we've had with um, the colonial structures that um, that continue to affect our lives every day. And so when we look at our past, um, we look at our past, you know, my, for your listeners, I know a lot about the Inuit past, the whaling, um, the, um, the RCMP and shooting dogs and the relocation of, um, and the relocation and leaving Inuit people to stay in one place as opposed to being the, the they like to move around, right? And the, the relocation yeah. was basically there was a piece of land that a whole bunch of countries realized was vacant. Right. So Canada said, well, no, that's my land. And they're like, no, nobody lives there. So what they did is they went and took Inuit from Inuit and they dropped them off there. And they said, well, there's, it's a very bountiful land. They said, you'll never be hungry there's everything you need and if you want in in a year when the ice breaks we'll come back and pick you up they left them there barren land nothing yeah. and they never came back so these are these are colonial histories that we've had as indigenous peoples and this has escalated um, you know for the metis people um, we were one of the founders of Manitoba and and, and we had a leader that was um, um, tried for treason and hung and it's all based on the fact that our lands that were that we occupied and the fur trade that we were involved in um, we didn't follow the, the you know the uh, colonial aspirations uh, right. of of Canada, or um, and they never followed through on their treaties. You know, if we look at the the Nunavut land claims agreements, you know, there's a lot of uh, things that are not happening in your agreement um, that are that are. We're Nunavik. Nunavik, sorry. Okay, so I got it wrong then. Yeah. You'll just kill that then. It's okay. But, I mean, from a Métis perspective, um, the there is existing land claims that haven't been acknowledged and we right. have to actually take them to court. So the colonial structures and the colonial um, the colonial uh, agreements, the colonial interference has, has caused a lot of, 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 of destabilizing of our peoples. 
And I really like that term. Yeah. Destabilizing. Yeah. Yeah, It totally makes sense. It's, it's, it's really about, you know, um, having factions within your community fighting amongst each other. Um, because a lot of people have not made necessarily have a lot of understanding. You have the old and the new kind of like, you know, bouncing back at each other. And so, you know, I think what I understood and what I understand now is that the government had a key, has a key mandate, and that is to get as much land as they can so they can, they can access their resources to make profit and, exploit and our exploit lands. our lands, right? And so for me, the, the picture is not, the picture in a contemporary term, in the term is still happening today. And the removal of children, that history of removing children. So, you know, it's the 60s scoop is is a, another dark era in Canadian history, but we have to think about the residential schools. You know, you spoke to me a little bit about um, the intergenerational effects of residential schools in your family. Well, these are um, colonial uh, aspirations of, again, removing children or removing the culture, ex- extinguishing the rights um, and whatever they can um, to assimilate um, Indigenous people into Canadian society. And you're right. Um, I call it um, genocide, but it, it was an attempted genocide because, I mean, we um, continue to um, prosper. Ex- prosper and exist in, even in these colonial structures. I, I got that term from when I had um, attended an, a National Inuit Youth Council um, meeting. So there was a man there named John Amavalik, and he was actually a relocated Inuit Inuk from Inukjuk. And he moved up to uh, Resolute Bay, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. But um, anyway, so he was the one who worked alongside with many other um, pioneers of Nunavut in creating the land claim agreements during that time. And he spoke about how he was relocated. And he talked about the residential school era. And he spoke about the intergenerational effects. And then he was the one. And this was one of my aha moments Uh. when he said, you know, they attempted to, you know, to wipe us out. And he said, but they didn't, they didn't succeed, he said. And he was speaking in Inukituk at that time. And <clears throat> many of our youth from, from, uh, from my region, from our region, are still very much dependent on our mother tongue, on our land. Mm-hmm. And um, like, like I said, a lot of them cannot identify where they have come from. Right. So yeah. there was the attempted genocide that may have... A, a ma- that may play a major role in their lives and they may not even be aware of it. Well, I think that's that's something that, you know, we talked a little bit about around, you know, learning where you come from and learning the history. Like if you look at residential schools, the 60s scoop, right. you know, the Indian Act um, um, and any other um, legislative um, uh, instrument that is really aimed at um, disconnecting you, dislodging you, removing you, assimilating you into mainstream. Um, these things is what I think um, youth don't have an understanding of. And the government is really good at, at making things look very 
beautiful, you know, these announcements they make for youth programs and so forth. But when it when it's time to roll them out or if there's really anything there, what substance is it really, how applicable is it to, um, to, to say, the youth or to the population that they're claiming to do things in the best interest of? Youth need to understand the colonial history of this country and what the main objective of Canada has been and continues to be. They will then understand that the structures and societal norms that have come into play have intergenerationally impacted them, but we have another layer of of impact, which is trauma on top of that. So we have a very toxic, very barren, very ugly um, pot of of, um, toxicity, of colonialism, of trauma, of all these different things that are not ours. They're, they're They're not the youth. These are things that have per- percolated over a long 150 years and beyond. And so if you need the youth need to really understand what those impacts, those historical uh, and colonial structures and histories have had and how that continues to percolate and impact their lives today. So as a, as a as you know as a young indigenous child, I was taken away because I was being taken away from my family to disconnect me from my land, from my culture, to assimilate me. Right. Because I was ill, or because I, because, I was, because I was dealing with the isolation and the impacts of that separation, which is now what I consider trauma, the first impact of trauma, or the first trauma that I experienced was being taken away from my mother, even though I was a baby. Right. I know that that happened. So, you know, the... The removal of my family, removing from my lands, removing me from my family, set me in a situation, a very a place where um, I was very isolated, and I used whatever I could to 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 mask the pain, to to kill it, and that didn't work. I ended up becoming sick as a consequence. As a consequence. So these are all linked. Right. They're they're linked, and you know now. You know, I dealt, I dealt, I dealt with anxiety and depression, and and I became PTSD because all these traumas, these these situations in my life, um, have come have have come to manifested into a mental health issue, mm-hmm. which has really affected the, the core of who I am. It's changed me physiologically. The chemicals in my body and my mind have changed to the point where it's it's affected me uh, psychologically. Right. Right. And now I'm dealing with um, now I'm dealing with uh, with the diabetes. These are all linked, and some of us, you know, for me, I'm very lucky. I tried to commit suicide on a number of times. I was very, I can't say I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate. I'm probably blessed that I was probably too scared to just do it the right, you know, whatever way that was. I was probably looking for more of attention and a cry for help. But for some of us, for many of us, we never made it because the pain was so that we didn't have an answer to those pains. So when we like think about, when we start thinking about, you know, um, you know, when we start thinking about healthy sexual relationships and we talk about STDIs, a lot of the stuff that's happening, um, I would, I would say is based on what our, what our history as indigenous peoples has been 
And some of us have been lucky and some of us haven't been lucky. And so when we think about, um, when I think about, you know, the stuff that I went through, there's thousands of us, there's, there's literally thousands of us and everybody to some degree has gone through it. It just depends on what, what um, risk factors are put in, and put in play. I, because I was an Indigenous person, I was disconnected from my family, I became HIV, you know, depression, whatever. Those all became risk factors. You know, and my aha moment really was the fact that I wasn't responsible for any of this stuff. Right. That was my aha moment. That everything that has been going on has been systematically put in place to cause me to to cause the system was was put in place to remove me and then almost like kill me and i just never gave up i never stopped mm -hmm. my music saved me my volunteering saved me my my wit my my core instincts saved me you know um and i tell you follow your instinct follow it it's the most important thing and if you don't understand something go and talk to somebody that you trust i had somebody that i could talk to not very often but there was people in my life that i was able to have a conversation with they, they knew that something was going on and they would draw that out and just be open to that conversation because maybe one person's word or one experience that you have could change your life and make it go into a completely different direction so, you know, for me, the aha moment was that they never took me down. I, I, I made it, you know, and I kept, it, it, you just, it wasn't my fault. You disassoci disassociated yourself from the guilt. Yeah, it, it wasn't, wasn't it's, yours. It's not mine. I didn't need to carry all that trauma. You know, trauma is not a bad thing. Really, it isn't. Because once you learn how to understand, once you learn the history of what has transpired, then you're able to sort of have that opportunity to take and separate yourself from the trauma. And I, my visualization, and I, I don't know, hopefully this will help, but I, I separate myself from my, 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 uh, my trauma. I'm able to do, to part and lie, to part. Decompartmentalize. Um, yeah, yeah, decompartmentalize. Yeah. yeah. Like I can, I can put it in like little departments around me, you right. know, and, and um, now before it was overwhelming, but now I sort of have taken and understand. I've done some land-based healing, trauma um, therapy sessions. And once I learned my colonial past and I need to figure out how to really um, go from identity to understanding what the colonial history was to now trying to figure out the trauma and then to heal from that. And to me, trauma is... I don't, I don't use those words anymore, but I, I, for people that want to understand, they're called experiences. They're positive or negative. And I've been able to take all the trauma or experiences, separate them, and then look at them. And what did I learn from them? You know, in all the, tra in all the trauma or all the experiences, I wasn't alone. Some of them maybe I was, but not always. So there's somebody always there. Right. And the different degrees of those traumas um, you, you're, you, I, I was able to sort of process a lot of that stuff and look at them and, and, and realize that I actually was able to protect myself. I did the right thing in protecting myself, whatever that was. It's a blanking it out or, or pushing it away or running away or whatever. I was able to separate and I didn't let it, like I didn't collapse. I was strong enough to, 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 to take it on. 
the idea of taking it all on is really heavy, but being able to learn how to separate yourself from that trauma and then looking at each one um, and going through a sort of a, a process to a point where you actually um, come to a realization that um, you made it. Right. Right. So, you know, when I think about my separation and being disconnected from my family, the fact that I became HIV, um, the fact that um, somebody, you know, interrupted my life and did all these different things, I can pull back and I can look at each of those experiences and say, oh, my God, I, I, I made it. You know, and I, I'm so excited when I get asked to talk to youth because really when I go back in time, you know, I'm almost, I'll be 50 next year. I still think like a youth because I still have the survival skills as a child. And we all have those, those, those survival mechanisms. We do, we do. And it just really takes, um, it takes, it's, it's about really pushing and fighting for your life, fighting for like, you know, Life is not easy, and I, I truly believe that. I wish it was. You know, <laughs> then it would be boring. But really, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, you know, it, you know. I remember having to go and turn the switch on the dial to, to turn I the TV. Not that. like you know the remote controls now. Now yeah. you can do it on your phone and whatever the case may be. But and the phone was attached to the wall. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but I think you know. It's really about following your gut instincts and really fighting. And yeah. so when you're thinking about, you know. Um, when I think about the, you know, the, you know, sexually transmitted diseases and all these different things that are going on with our youth, they're, they're, they really need to really, I think they need to step back a little bit and learn more about who, who, who they are and what their history is before they can start taking on like other kind of other pieces of their life. Because identity is really, really the most important thing. You know, as a youth, I remember I needed to be, I, I was a youth, I remember um, identifying on a number of different issues. But we're, you know, we're invincible and and whatever. But, you know, um, life is really, is a difficult thing. But we still can, we can persevere and we can, we can flourish and we can, we can, we can keep going forward. So, <clears throat> sorry. Yeah. From what I understand from you know, all of your past experiences um, and how you've been able to associate or disassociate with them, I think is a really instrumental part of your being. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been able to overcome these challenges with time. Yes. Um, and you have been able to take these experiences and build a solid foundation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then from there... Um, you've been starting to move forward and you've built on top of this foundation and you've been able to take these experiences and make something out of them. Like Mm -hmm. you said, your volunteering has helped you because you had been helped, you know. You now sit on uh, the Métis National Council, which I think is amazing. You're the president of the, I'm sorry? So I don't sit on the Métis National Council, but I'm, um, I'm the president of the Ontario Aboriginal Strategy. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. That's okay. And I'm actually uh, a co-founder and the and a director for the National Indigenous Survivors of Child Welfare Network, which wow. is working on dealing or supporting those in the child welfare system and the work on the 60 scoop. So, know. so how I see it is, from what you've built, your 
uh, foundation on and what you've been able to build on top of that, you're also helping set other foundations around you, which I think is very inspirational, by mm. the way. And from there, you're helping all these different causes and organizations build upon their foundations in which you have helped set. Um, you know, I have to say it's amazing against all odds, you've become a true visionary, leader, and role model for many, um, you know, not just not just in Indigenous uh, people of Canada, but, you know, in general. I think it, we're always identifying ourselves with labels mm. and we leave ourselves susceptible or vulnerable for judgment. But, you know, I think that what I get off of you is a sense of, you know, belonging. Mm. You belong to all these things mm. and you give space for people to belong to their things mm. too, which I think is really amazing. Um, you know, seeing how far you've come from Clyde River, Manitoba, or Crane River. Crane. Crane River, sorry, <laughs> we have a Clyde River where we're from. Yeah, I think I've heard. Yeah. I think I've heard cleared, yeah. So uh, considering how far you come uh, out of Crane River, um, I'd like to know what kind of future goals do you have? What what do you envision the future as, especially for youth, uh, for Métis, for First Nations, Inuit? Well, I mean, I think um, our my aspirations sometimes change. Right. Uh, really depending on what's really going on out there but i think overall i would like to be able to see or get to a point where um our um that any person that is um indigenous feels like they belong uh, belong where they belong and that they are um that they're proud of who they are and can live a very fulfilling and productive life is really, you know, the overall sort of picture. Um, I come from a very, very proud and very strong Métis family. Um, humor is, is um, our daily, I call it our daily bread, really. It's a biblical term, but I say that. <laughs> <laughs> and I truly believe that, you know, um, I'm blessed um, to be able to go home um, and spend time with my family to laugh. And I feel like I belong. And I think that's really important for each and every Indigenous person um, that, um, that lives. And, and I think that's really, you know, it's a very broad, it's a really big big aspiration, but I don't think it's something that's not attainable. Mm -hmm. yeah. One of the things that I've been able to come to um, conclusion with, with my own story a little bit is, you know, um, I've been able to identify a few generations back. I've been able to start to set the foundation for myself and for my son and for my husband. And anyway, so one of the things that I've been really 
able to come to terms with is that, okay, it's my history. Mm-hmm. It's not me, though. Mm-hmm. Like, that does not define me. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, in the same way, almost have been able to disassociate myself with that guilt, mm-hmm. with the intergenerational experience, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So in, in this process, I've been able to kind of cut the cord. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I have my son, mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily something that I want to have him relive. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, hearing you speak and talking about your experience, and, you know, I can think about my mother's experience, my grandfather, grandmother, my aunts and uncles. There's, we're a huge family, like most Native families. Yeah. yeah. We <laughs> eat a lot of bannock. <laughs> so... You know, I can try to, you know, I put myself in their shoes and I try and think about, you know, how scary of a time it must have been. And I try and think about, you know, if that was me and my son, I don't think I would be able to survive it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, and I see you and how much you've been able to survive along the way. I mean, like, wow. You know, you're very strong. Very strong. Thanks. I think that youth are very strong and you seeing that they kind of cutting the umbilical cord or cutting the that that connection is really really key is is really important I think that's what youth um, should not feel guilty about doing and just doing it and charting a new course for themselves right Um, I think you know you know a lot of things have happened to our people. And the funny thing is the state goes after our children. Like everything that they've done has been against children. And to hear um, you say that is very, um, is very exciting for me to hear that, that these type of things have to stop. And, you know, um, I think that's one of the best, one of the one of the most important things um, that can happen, because once those are all in place, you understand everything, and you decide to disconnect from all that because mm-hmm. it's not yours. Mm-hmm. Then only will everything else sort of come into play. Everything will become healthy again in balance. I have a kind of, I don't want to say like, off. Off topic? I mean, a little bit, but I'm just like curious about um, the 60 scoop has been recently recognized. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you, how you feel about that. Well, you know, there's still some outstanding issues around the 60 scoop because, like I said, I mentioned it's around the agreement is around um, the loss of language culture and they have like reconciliation programs and stuff like that. They, the, the, the real issue is uh, around the removal of children that were scooped illegally uh, at the behest of the states, uh, the province and the federal government. And I don't think that has been addressed yet. Right. And uh, I'm glad to see that there is some recognition, but um, I still think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. The network that I created uh, along with two other 60 Scoop survivors is working to, 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 to determine that, to, to put in place uh, land-based healing programs and services, um, supports, repatriation programs, those kind of things that need to be put in place. Um, I think it's a start. Right. Um, I can't be negative Nelly uh, on that, but I, 
I would say that I was I'd be very remiss if I just said that that was that was the end of it all. Right. You're not quite satisfied. So. I'm not really that quite. I'm not satisfied. You know, for me, when I'm satisfied, again, is when you stop removing children from their families. That when children get to grow up in their own families and they're supported um, and have connection to their families and their land and who they are, right. that's when I'm going to be satisfied. But, you know, um, will that happen in my lifetime? You never know. I'm optimistic. We, we have this really ridiculous law um, in Quebec. I think it's called Law 21 or something. Uh, anyway, yeah. something along the lines. And it's... Um, basically where uh, youth protection has all these really ridiculous standards of how children need to live. Yeah. So, you know, they need to have a room that is Five so by many nine cubic or something, yeah. feet by so many cubic feet, and then they need to have their own bed and their own dresser that's five feet or, you know, two feet away from the window, and the window has to be certain measurements. Anyway, it's super ridiculous, and it's extremely culturally irrelevant. Wow. So... Anyway, I'm, I'm just thinking about how, you know, even in this day and age, it's pretty easy for children to be displaced. Oh, yeah. It's definitely. extremely easy for yeah. children to be displaced, considering how the laws are so culturally insensitive and how, especially in where we live, we have nothing but social housing. Yeah. Because the cost of living is too high, and yeah. uh, you know it's not a choice for us to build a house if we wanted to, because it's just ridiculous. So we have situations where we have multiple family homes yeah. so you have two three generations living in a three-bedroom house and you know we never had rooms we grew up in tents you know yeah. so we had a mattress on the floor next not like you know five feet away from the stove like yeah yeah <laughs> but i you know what child welfare is an industry right like i mean the government uh, people profit like um people that are in the child welfare industry right. are profiting you know, the amounts of money that um, some caretakers make are uh, close to twenty to $30,000 a month for children. How for many children? 20, like three children. No. So if you have mental health issues, some children are, are some foster parents are being paid twenty to $30,000 a month. Twenty to $30,000 a month for taking care of children? For, like if you left them in the family and you just gave them like $5,000 a month? You would save. Right. Like so much money, like 250000 And better the quality of life. Well, exactly. The family would be um, set for set for it. So these, it's an industry. And these buildings that you see, like child family service buildings and the homes that are, that, that the lot, a lot of the homes that are not, that are, that are, that foster these children have paid. I've probably, my, my, our people have paid for buildings and for houses, and for cars, and for clothes, and for trips, and for everything, right. while our people are poor and are being displaced and disconnected from their land. It's, you know... We're an industry. It's still, it's still having the same effects as, you know, a lot of the different situations, different situations... 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. Like, you it's know? Still, it's still... It, nothing... You know, the only thing that's changed is that the government has um, has found new, um, um, like the authorities are still in place, but they found other people to do it, like indigenous organizations to do it, right? 
So I don't know about Quebec, but I know Manitoba, like indigenous organizations have the authorities over child family services and children, indigenous children. And so, but they're the, yeah, they're the, <laughs> yeah, but they, they're, but they're the, they're the, they're the actors for the government of Canada or for the province for child welfare. So they're just, they're doing the same thing. They're perpetuating the same thing and they're making lots of money. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's, a, that's another thing that I've always been superly passionate about. Totally off subject. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. No, it's <laughs> like, good. Um, another, Enjoying our conversation. Yeah, I love it. I think I could talk like this all day and then like end the day with a bottle of wine. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, I think that a lot of our listeners are going to be able to gain a lot of uh, important information that will help them in their own journeys. So I'd like to thank you for that. Um, again, um, we talked about uh, a lot of the challenges that you've had, that you faced in your life, and we've talked about how you overcame them. Um, and I think which is um, really important for other people to, you know, see as an example, because you know, like I said, against all odds, you've been able to come a, a true and visionary, which is amazing. Um, I asked you this question in the beginning, okay? <laughs> and I don't know, I, I know that we've been having such really great uh, conversation. I don't think you've been able to put much thought into it, but I'm going to ask you again. Um, what's your favorite sexy song? <laughs> Just thinking, I'm so sexy for <laughs> Okay. Go back. Go back. <laughs> I don't know who sings it. I'm so sexy for my song. So sexy for my. Who sings Too it? I'm sexy so sexy for, for the catwalk. Yeah, the catwalk or something like oh, that. Oh, the catwalk. Walk. Yeah, the That's, catwalk. I like that one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm an 80s baby, but I grew up uh, with a lot of. Who sings that song? I'm so sexy I don't know. for It's my another catwalk. 90s one hit wonder. Hang on, I'll tell you, man. Okay. I want to... You want me to sing while you Shazam? <laughs> no, I'm so sexy. That song I used to... I'm so sexy. And I'm so wexy. That's really good. I'm so AXY. Okay. Uh, is your autocorrect? Yeah. Who sings this song? It's one of my favorite songs. I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred. That's right. Okay, I'm okay. Because okay. I'm a model, you know what I mean? I do my little turn on the catwalk, yeah, on the catwalk. Oh, on the catwalk, yeah. Yeah, I love that song. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, oh. so what's the title of it again? Um, I'm so, what's it called? Um, I'm So Sexy. Come on. Oh, no. Right said Fred. Uh, right said Fred, I'm too sexy. Okay. I'm too sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Do you have any final remarks? No, I'm just okay. really happy. Let's continue this discussion online. Check out the Checkup Project Facebook page. This week, we want to know from you. If you could tell your younger self something, what would it be? Also, using a GIF, we want to know what your favorite sexy song is. Stay awesome and stay tuned. Pew.
use of it is financed by the Nunavik Regional Board of Health and Social Services. Thanks to our host, Louisa Yates, the Twin Flames and the Beatrice Deerband for the music. Audio Z for mix and editing. 32 Mars for the production. Véronique Morin and Fayla Grizzly from the Public Health Team for content and coordination. Thanks to our guests, Dwayne Morisseau. Mostly, thanks to you, our listeners.